Well, I predict, I got a prediction that in the next few weeks you're going to be asked a certain question. And that question is, you ready for Christmas? You, gonna, you think you're going to be asked that question? I, I get asked that question and I never know how to respond. Like, and so this year, though, I'm ready. I've got some ready-to-go answers, and you can use them too uh, when people put you on the spot. And somebody says, ready for Christmas? For example, you can say, was I supposed to get ready? There you go. That's a good one. Or you can say, hey, I'm always ready for Christmas. And, uh, or there's another one you can try, which is, uh, hey, it's coming whether I'm ready or not. So, and those are basically all non-answers, right? Uh, of course, when somebody asks you if you're ready for Christmas, what they really want to know is, is your shopping done? Is the tree up? Are the, is the food made? Are the presents wrapped? Well, today's the first Sunday of Advent, like we said earlier. And Christmas, Trisha and I, was, uh, she was saying yesterday, Christmas is only three and a half weeks away. And um, through the centuries, uh, disciples of Jesus have set aside this time as a season of preparation. So how will you prepare for Christmas? Uh, some of you are going to go through a little Advent calendar you've got, right? You do that every year. Uh, others of you are going to set up maybe different nativities in your, around your house. Um, and then a lot of you are maybe like you've got an Advent candle wreath, and you'll light the candles, say the prayers. Some of you have an Advent devotional, maybe a book, or you do it online. Well, I can tell you this. Unless you prepare spiritually, your Christmas will be a pagan holiday. Have you thought about that? Unless you prepare yourself spiritually, your Christmas will be a pagan holiday. And I'm not saying that's a, that's a really bad thing, but uh, it, will, it will still be a family holiday. It will still be a festive holiday. But unless we prepare, Christmas will become nothing more than a, a celebration of winter wonderland, attempting to stave off seasonal affective disorder. You know, of course, for a lot of people, pagan holiday is fine. I mean, I don't, really, I don't begrudge that. You know, Trisha and I will probably watch White Christmas this month. There's not really anything Christmassy about it, really. I mean, when you get down to the heart of it, uh, Christmas has also become kind of a Hollywood holiday, right? Uh, with its manufactured magic. The way I look at it, there's nothing really wrong with celebrating the wonders of winter. Winter would be too long, dark, and dreary without something to kind of liven it up and provide something festive. But I believe that you are here today because you want to celebrate something more than winter solstice. You want to re-experience the arrival of our Savior. And so today we begin. We begin preparing ourselves to re-enter the salvation story. Now there's one important per person in the Bible uh, who's really important to uh, the Advent season, but you never will see this person in a nativity scene. And that's Jesus' cousin, John. Actually, their mothers were cousins related somehow. And uh, the, the two women were, were pregnant at some of the same time, although John was born first. So this Advent, we're going to get to know John, the Baptist. 
Uh, we're going to look at John's message, and we're going to see how he, what he did, what he said, to get people ready to meet Jesus. You know, I look at myself sometimes, I go, Steve, what a, what a privileged life you have. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, I'm just saying that's the way it is. For example, I have a garage. That's privilege, isn't it? I mean, I didn't grow up with a garage, but I've got a garage. Pretty nice. But you know, a couple weeks ago, my garage remote quit working. And I, I put new batteries in it. Try this one, try this one. New batteries didn't help. So, you know, this is really a first world problem, isn't it? When, you, when your garage door won't open. What good is a garage, though, if you can't get in? So I got a new remote, programmed it, everything works fine. And today, we start to open the door wide so that we can meet Jesus in a fresh way. And that is why we're listening to John the Baptist, okay? So let's open our Bibles to that passage that Lori just read for us. It's in Matthew chapter 3 in the Pew Bible. If you're grabbing that, it's on page 967. And uh, maybe one of you here would say, you know, I wish I had a Bible like this to read at home. It's kind of readable. And, uh, well, we've got some out at the Connection Center, which is next to the elevator. Just grab one. You can have it. It's yours. Jen Robinson tells me we give away about one every week now. And uh, if you say, well, where do I read? Well, today we're reading in Matthew chapter 3. Go home this afternoon and read that whole chapter. Tell us more about John the Baptist and the time that he baptized Jesus. So I like the description of John the Baptist that you will find in verse 4. Will you look at that with me? It says, John's clothes were made out of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. So why does it tell about his clothes? That's kind of an odd thing. Most Bible characters, don't, they don't tell us about their clothes. But uh, that's because the, the clothes here sent a message. Israel's prophets, they love to use actions and symbols to give impact to their words. And, and most people's clothes in that day were made of what? Wool, right? From the, I mean, that's the, the biggest reason they had sheep in those days was for clothing. Um, but the hair of camels and goats could also be spun into thread and woven into fabric. And this was often called sackcloth, okay? It was, it was a rough fabric. Uh, most people only wore sackcloth when they wanted to express extreme grief uh, or show sorrow for their sins. They would, they would put on sackcloth. Wear, wearing camel's hair would be like wearing a burlap sack for clothing, okay? Uh, you all know what, what burlap is. It's, it's, it's like fabric made of rope fibers like that. Uh, so... Uh, John wore sackcloth from camel's hair to really bring home his message that God was calling everybody to show remorse for their sins and to repent of their sins. And then it says, John wore a leather belt, which could be for fashion, but I don't think that's what it was. Uh, both the garment of hair and the leather belt matched the description of the fiery prophet Elijah from nine centuries earlier. The book of 2 Kings says that Elijah had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. So John, he dressed the part. He was a wilderness prophet like, like Elijah. 
And what did John eat out there in the wilderness? Uh, Verse 4 says, his food was locusts and wild honey. So Pete and repeat aren't the only ones eating bugs, we know. Uh, They're in good company with uh, John the Baptist. Locusts are kind of like grasshoppers, but a little bit bigger. Uh, and, you know, there are, places, there are different varieties of them, but there, there are places in the world today where people in poverty get the major part of their protein from eating locusts. Um, so, so John's out there catching bugs for breakfast and lunch and dinner. And some days uh, he might be lucky and get to find some honey to dip him in. I'm sure that makes him a little more palatable. But this is the life God has told, called him to. And it really worked. It, it got people's attention, and they knew that John was, was devoted to God. He was a holy man. And, and what is John's message? Well, now let's back up to verse 2, will you? Look at that with me. It says, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. So every day John's out there in the wilderness, whether there's people who hear him or not, but then there got to be a lot of people who would come and hear him. And, and I can just hear the choir singing just as I am as, as, as John calls people to come forward and repent of their sins and, and be baptized. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I like, I like Dale Bruner's translation. Turn your lives around because here comes the kingdom of heaven. John is saying that the reign of God is bursting in on the earth like a tsunami. It'll be salvation for those who receive it, and it'll be judgment for those who reject it. So turn your lives around and get on board with what God is doing. The people knew, the people knew that that when the Messiah would come to establish God's kingdom, he would be preceded by someone who would prepare the people. And John knows that's his role. That's who he is. He is the preparer. And verse 3 says, This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. You know, I grew up on a farm. And um, I can tell you that I've seen a lot of cow paths in my day. You've seen cow paths, right? How do cows make cow paths in the pasture? By walking in that same path day after day, time after time, on that same little route. Uh, A path represents choices that we have made repeatedly. And the choices that we make repeatedly, our paths, reveal a lot about us. They reveal what we love most. Our paths may even reveal what we worship. Whenever we attempt to gain strength or purpose or meaning and and hope and life from things that are less than God, the Bible says that's idolatry. And And when we're on those kind of paths, we are making crooked paths. John says, make straight paths because the Lord is coming. You know, I ought to say, though, that a lot of times I don't like to leave my path. Crooked or not, I'm kind of used to it. It's comfortable. I don't have to think about it. 
And even when I want to change my path, sometimes I find that I have a hard time doing it. I can't make myself get it right. I'm powerless. So I know I need help. And the first step in finding that help is to confess. Confess. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, confessing their sins, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so today's message, I can summarize it, wrap it up in, in one short prayer of confession. Here it is. I'll put it up on the screen. Will you say it with me? Oh God, I confess my well-worn paths of sin and idolatry. Work powerfully in me so I can make straight paths. Hope you'll write that prayer down. You've got a page there for notes inside your, your program. Um, take a picture of it, whatever works for you, but, but meditate on it. Talk about it in your, and pray with your family or with your faith group this week. Uh, ask God to examine your heart and reveal to you what well-worn paths might be, you might be on. One of our well-worn paths, I think, is, a lot of times is anger. Ugh, anger. Anger is such a, a primal emotion, isn't it? It just sort of bursts out of us. Uh, some of us hit the boiling point really quickly. Others simmer for a long time. And there's good anger. There's bad anger. There's positive anger and negative anger. Positive anger, anger that is good for us, is, is God's way, I think, of motivating us to make positive changes in our lives. Right? Negative anger uh, is a launching pad for hurtful words and actions. For example, let's say that murder is on a scale from here to here. Well, Jesus said that expressing our anger with mean, hurtful words is somewhere on the murder scale. may not be the worst form of murder, but he said it's on the scale. Ephesians 4.26 says, in your anger, that it's when you get angry, it says, do not sin. So when you get angry, you better watch out because it's very easy to sin when you're anger, angry. When, when, angry, uh, when anger leads to sin, the next verse says uh, that we're giving the devil a foothold in our lives. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Giving the devil a foothold in our lives. When, when anger leads us to hurt somebody, to take revenge, to harbor resentment, to, to withhold forgiveness, we're giving the evil one a foothold in our lives, a place where he can step in and do even more harm. Well, one reason that... Uh, we're doing this series I, is because I think it's easy for us to make up our own Jesus. Okay? My made-up Jesus always agrees with me. My, my made-up Jesus never challenges me. And John realizes that it's his job to prepare us to meet the real Jesus. The real Jesus, for example, says that, that lust is not an innocent pastime. In this, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, just a couple chapters ahead of where we're reading today. So let's say uh, that adultery is on a scale from here to here. Jesus said 
that on that scale is lustful looking. I don't know where it is on that scale, but Jesus said it's on there. And we create a path for it by repeatedly letting our imaginations roam freely in that direction. Now John says, get ready to meet Jesus. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he will forgive you. But you have to be willing and ready to confess that you've been headed in the wrong direction. Repent. Turn around. The ruler of Galilee during this time was a guy named Herod Antipas. He's the son of King Herod from the Christmas story. And then in chapter 14 of Matthew, uh, his gospel, it says this. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. You see, Herod had seduced his brother's wife, claimed her as his own, and John, in true prophet form, was holding Israel's ruler accountable. Herod, he probably thought, you know, these old laws of Moses, they're they're outdated, they're old-fashioned, they they don't fit the culture of our day. You, You know, it's time to have a more relaxed view of these things. But John knows that we will not be ready to meet Jesus if we believe that right is wrong and wrong is right. Let's pray our prayer again, shall we? Oh God, I confess my well-worn paths of sin and idolatry. Work powerfully in me so I can make straight paths. In the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., I've not been there, But uh, there is this painting. Uh, It was uh, done by, in 1879, by a little-known French artist named Pierre Pouvet de Chavant. I hope I'm pronouncing it halfway close. It depicts the prodigal son from Jesus' parable. He has left his father's home. He's squandered his entire inheritance. The only job he can find is working for the local farmer. And if you're a Jew... And the only work you can find is feeding pigs. Well, then you know you have hit bottom. And when the pigs are eating better than you are, that is added insult. Deshavon captures the moment uh, when the young man in the Jesus story says, came to his senses. So you see him there, his head is bowed, his hands held to his chest. He's thinking deeply about his life and about the choices that he has made, the paths that he has made. And in this moment, he begins to realize that there may be a better path. So he gets up and he rehearses his speech on the way home. Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be your son. Please just hire me as one of your laborers. I mean, it was the most he could hope for. And, and that long, hungry walk home was the beginning of a new path. As he caught sight of his father's house in the distance, his father caught sight of him. And his father just came running with the servants following behind. And he has this huge smile on his face as he wraps his arms around his son and kisses him. 
And I can hear him just laughing and crying all at the same time. And then the son begins his speech, the one he had practiced, but the father cuts it short. This is his son. He calls his servants, get, get sandals for his feet, get the family ring to put on his finger, uh, bring out my new robe for him to wear. And that was a, it was a big scene of celebration, the party that followed. But before that wonderful reunion, there was that moment in the painting where the son is pondering the paths he has made for himself. And he realizes, he becomes very honest with himself about where those paths have led him. And yet, he can hear in his memory his father's love. It's as if John the Baptist were whispering to him, Repent, young man. Turn your life around. God's kingdom is coming, and you can be a part of it. And through the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist is whispering to you, Repent. Turn your life around. God's kingdom is coming, and you can be a part of it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, sometimes we don't really want to do the hard work of doing inventory of our lives and counting our sins and naming them before you. Before you. It's just too hard. But, Lord, we're going to do that now in this season. We're going to name them before you. We're going to come before you because we want to become clean. And that means admitting where we have not been. Lord, we want, to, we want to find a new path, straight paths, but we have to come clean and admit where we've been on the wrong path, where our repeated choices have taken us. And so, Lord, as we take this inventory, as we make our confession before you, we pray that you will give us the freedom of knowing that we are whole and forgiven and righteous in your sight. Amen.